Welcome to Design Is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview guests about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about designing for diversity and the steps towards creating an equitable future. Joining us today as guest co-host is Boy Wen Gao, co-founder of Project Inkblot, a design for diversity consultancy. And our special guest is Antoinette Carroll, the president and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab, a nonprofit educating and deploying youth to challenge racial and health inequities impacting Black and Latinx populations. Before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Check out our We Design Exhibition conversation cards. These incredibly well-designed cards bring our We Design exhibition to your home. Right to you. We Design is an exhibition that we put together that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, and it includes statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. The deck can be used alone or with friends. Hey, you can even use it over Zoom. Why not? And it's available to order now on designmuseumeverywhere.org. And with that, on to this week's topic, designing for diversity. Like our show explores, design is everywhere and design is for everyone, or at least it should be. So how do we design for diversity, equity, and inclusion? What does that process look like? I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by Boywen Gao. She is a designer and futurist who is partnering with companies to create equitable products, services, content, and experiences. Boywen is the co-founder and principal of Project Inkblock, a design for diversity consultancy whose clients include Visa, Shopify, LinkedIn, Peloton, Kickstarter, and more. Prior to Project Inkblot, Boywen has also worked as a digital marketer, community organizer, curriculum designer, music and culture journalist, and workshop facilitator. She is a lecturer of the Intro to Design for Diversity at the Interactive Telecommunications Program, or ITP, at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. Boywen designs to create an equitable future for all. Boywen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. I'm so psyched to be here. It's nice to see you again. I loved your talk along with Jahan at the Workplace Innovation Summit. So I'm glad we're getting to get even deeper on the podcast. So thank you. Thank you. So speaking of you and your co-founder, Jahan Manton, we learned that you met at a music and culture magazine and you both have had a range of roles over the course of both of your careers. So I'm curious, when did you discover design as a tool for impactful change? Like so many people, I started off not really knowing what my path was, and I had so many disparate interests. And I think the question about how did I get into design was through meandering through all these different trajectories and industries and trying to figure out, well, what is my path? How do I create something? And that has everything to do with design and how we think about design at Project Inkblot, which is that everyone's a designer. It's just like how you all believe that design is for everyone. We believe that everyone is a designer. If you are making decisions that impact other human beings, then you are a designer. I think people make that distinction of capital D design, like are you a designer in your title versus the concept of design, which is more in the realm of where we're at, which is thinking through concepts and philosophies and how we live our lives and really how we impact people. 
And so it's through all of these weirdo jobs that we've had <laughs> that came to light, right? Yeah, I love that. On an episode of Thrive, you chatted about teaching people how to shift from purposeless work to purposeful work. So how do you help others find what makes their work meaningful to them? At the end of the day, the reason why we're so enthralled by design or the prospect of design or the possibility of design is because we can shift our trajectories and our futures. And I think when people are purposeless, um, at least I'll speak for myself, it's because I don't know how I'm impacting other people. I don't have a real connectedness to others. I don't have a real connectedness to why I'm doing something. And so the core of our work is really around the why. It's systems thinking. It's like beyond solving a problem, which I think a lot of capital D practitioners of design are trained to do is like, let's solve a problem. It's more about the how. Our work is really about the why. Like, why does that exist, right? And then our work is also specifically around racial equity. So we want to ask, well, why are things the way that they are? What are all of those um, underlying or even invisible systems beneath these outputs and decisions and behaviors and attitudes that we have that lead to certain products and services and outcomes that are impacting people. Yeah. And sometimes have an unintentional impact because there wasn't an inclusive approach. And I think you all have been so good at uncovering those elements. And I just love what you all are doing. I want to learn, you know, how did even the company come about? Oh, my goodness. How much time do we have? Okay, <laughs> so I'll try to make it short. So John and I, we were music and culture editors at a print magazine, which seems so ancient at this point. Right. We were both working there super part time, freelancy, that sort of thing. And then we didn't really know each other very well, but we had a vibe and we had a couple of conversations in terms of how do we create our own trajectories and our own futures. That was the realm of our conversation. And we were like, let's freaking do something together. And we had no idea what the heck that was going to be. We started off just thinking about, well, what what do we desire? Like, what's something that we see that's missing? Right. And so. Mm. I think that terminology has changed so much, like what is diversity, what is inclusion, what are all these things, but fundamentally in our field, in this uh, digital content space, we were just seeing that there's nobody who looked like us who were getting spotlighted for the incredible work that they were doing. And we mean like really dope people who are doing really community-based work and changing their communities and creating all these initiatives and nobody was getting any kind of shine. So we created an online magazine to spotlight folks from all over the world. The first woman Yemeni photographer to food justice um, activists out in Oakland. I mean, it really ran the, the gamut. And the truth was that we wanted to learn from their processes. How did you get started? How did you create your own thing? How did you garner a whole audience around your work? How did you get evangelists? How did you move this from your head out into the world. And that has everything to do with design, right? So through doing that, we were like, that's how we started to codify, how do we start our own business? How do we create our own thing? And I think that what's a little bit different about our trajectory, or maybe it's not different, it's just not told about a whole lot, is that we never knew what the hell we were doing. And we never had a clear vision from the beginning to say, here's what it is, let's build it. It more was through a lot of experimentation, 
a lot of mistakes, speaking to a ton of people, asking for advice, doing a lot of free work until we figured out, okay, this is it. And that took a long time, right? So we mm -hmm. moved from an online magazine to doing in-person workshops that were super hyper-local in Brooklyn. And it was mostly geared towards women who were working boring-ass jobs who were like, I want to start my own business. And that's how we started doing really building curriculum, building programs and, and offering that to our local community. And then that led to consulting and blah, blah, blah. Then we got a client <laughs> list, right? And then we started in this niche of women's entrepreneurship when that was super hot. Remember that? Mm -hmm. That was like 2017, 18. Mm -hmm. We did a few events about it back then. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was like mostly all white women who were well-networked and well-networked, right? Who went to Harvard Business School. And so much of what we did was building these programs and and really designing in who was missing and what was missing. And we were like, wait, we don't, why are we, why are we brought in to do this every single time? This can be codified, right? Other people can approach their work differently. They can think about process differently. They can ask different questions that are going to inform how they design a thing. And then that's going to lead to more equitable outcomes. And so, bam, Design for Diversity was born. Let's get into that process, you know, starting with like, who are we and who, who needs to be here? How do you approach educating folks on that process for designing for diversity or augmenting their existing design processes? Yeah, there's so many elements to it. So when Design for Diversity was first codified, it was five phases. And if anyone's read our article on the Creative Independent, it breaks it down in those ways, right? But that's just the actual design approach. Then there are other things that have everything to do with education, but not in an in informational education way. It's more of it in a transformational education way, which is how are we asking questions? And so our framework really is a bunch of different frameworks. And one is really around our mindsets. And one is around how we design, right? One is creating the conditions in which we can create co-design. But you can't teach people how to co-design. You can only have people learn the things, the attitudes, behaviors, and the mindsets to create the conditions for that to happen. And then everything else is relational. And so, so much of design for diversity is the relational piece. It's like, how do we interact together when there are all these variables and dynamics at play, whether they be power dynamics or inherited culture. And one of the pieces of design for diversity is locating oneself in the process. So are we talking about you as a designer, as an individual, Sam, or are we talking about our interpersonal relationship as a team? Or are we talking about the institution and the systems and processes within that? And then all of that ladders up to the systemic agreements that our society has. And so much of our work is interrogating, investigating, and identifying, right? And then in interrupting. Like, that's what we do is we interrupt patterns that lead to the same results over and over again. I'm curious, what lessons have you learned as you've been doing this work over the years? I, I imagine, again, knowing a little about you and Jahan, like you're constantly iterating. So what have you learned? Yeah, iterating is fun. Iterating is just par for the course, right? That's just what we have to do. And sometimes our team members are like, we're changing this again? Why? Right? And it's just because I think one of the biggest things is like um, what that we've learned and that we've internalized recently is like, go where the energy is, not necessarily where the demand is, but like go where the energy is, where you're also aligned with the energy. 
And doing this work, you have to create a lot of boundaries and you have to level set a lot of expectations because companies come to us and they're like, we want to embed equity into everything that we do. And we're like, great, but um, let's also just acknowledge that everything is embedded with white supremacy and white dominant culture right now. So if you haven't contended with that and had a real reckoning around all the different levels of that, then we can't even start. Again, I love what you all are doing in terms of you created a framework and a process because you know I think that's the vocabulary and the with the eyes that probably your clients like think about. But then I very you very quickly get them into again these these contexts and these conversations. So I think it's very smart the way you've approached it, uh, and I hope everyone will will go check it out. So thank you, Boywen, for sharing your thought leadership, uh, listeners. Visit projectinkblot.com and Boywen, stick around and we'll bring Antoinette Carol into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. All right, we're back and we're joined by our special guest, Antoinette Carroll. She is a redesigner for justice for health equity and racial equity. She is the president and CEO of the Creative Reaction Lab, a nonprofit educating and deploying youth to challenge racial and health inequities impacting Black and Latinx populations. Antoinette is an Aspen Institute and ADL Civil Society Fellow, a TED Fellow, and an Echoing Green Global Fellow. Her TED Talks explore how everything around us has been designed, including systems of inequality. Antoinette redesigns to co-create and reimagine a world in which racial equity and health equity are the status quo. Antoinette, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. To start, uh, we just would love to hear more about what led you to this work of reimagining a world in which racial equity and health equity are the status quo. So, you know, for me, it's looking at the reality that and, you know, this the name of this podcast, I think it's also very timely that everything has been by design and being mindful that when we talk about it, it's not just the objects that we navigate every single day, but also the systems and the behaviors that we have and also our life expectancy, quality of life. And unfortunately, the systems of oppression, inequality and inequity. And so with my work, I, one, acknowledge the power of design because I've had folks in my community say, well, design can't change anything. And I'm like, well, that means your definition is pretty skewed. <laughs> Whereas I recognize that design, you know, impacts all of the outcomes uh, in society. And when you look at this world, this work working towards equity, it is recognizing that we are trying to get to a world where outcomes are not predictable based on people's identities. And so when you look at the reality that design is the intention and unintentional impact behind an outcome. You look at the world of equity that we're working towards, which is when outcomes are not predictable based on any identity, 
you automatically see the interconnection between both. And so for me, it wasn't necessarily this approach to be innovative or, you know, I want to do something new. It was actually just recognizing the synergy that already existed and, and acknowledging the language that was a barrier. And also, um, in some cases, the lack of responsibility and accountability uh, that we all are designers, we all are decision makers, and therefore we are either choosing to uphold these systems of inequity or we're choosing to actively address them. I've had the pleasure of attending a couple of the workshops uh, from Creative Reaction Lab. The one, I mean, I still use the language and the vocabulary from the, um, you know, was reframing the design process, you know, away from white supremacy towards equity. So can you tell us a bit more about Creative Reaction Lab? And I'd love for you to share a bit about that workshop series because it was so impactful to me. Absolutely. So Creative Reaction Lab has been around <laughs> surprisingly seven years. Uh, we were founded in response to the uprising in Ferguson. I am a former Ferguson resident. And at the time, I was also highly involved with AIGA, the Professional Association of Design. I was involved at the local level as um, vice president of our chapter, but I also was the founding chair of the Diversity Inclusion Task Force at the national level with AIGA. And I saw at this time this yearning for the creative industry to do something around what was happening on the ground in Ferguson. And I also saw this stereotypical approach where I had some folks in our community say, let's just do a poster campaign. And, you know, I was like, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> like I'm not doing that. That's always the solution. <laughs> that's always the solution. Let's do a poster. Let's build an app. You know, let's create a website. You know, it, it's very problematic. And again, it is centering oneself, not through the lens of like the reflection of their identity, but centering one's professional acumen and say, this must be the, the solution, quote unquote, because this is what I know, which is a problematic approach. And so um, I decided to create a 24-hour challenge that brought together creative pra um, practitioners, technologists, and activists and have them work together to think about what are some interventions they could develop to address racial inequities and racial division within the St. Louis region. That was, you know, su successful, quote unquote. It brought out um, different interventions that last several years. And fast forward to where we are today, we essentially built upon that and recognized that it wasn't enough to just focus on the creative industry, but recognizing that everyone is creative. <laughs> and, and so I even had to go through my own journey of recognizing that I was even upholding barriers by only focusing on the creative industry at that time. And now we primarily center our mission around working with Black and Latinx youth to address issues around race and health in our communities and recognizing that it's not enough to just mobilize young people because we do believe that young people have been architects of change throughout the history of this country before they gave it a name and it was actually different tribes on this land and also different parts of the world. Young folks have been the change makers or as we call them, redesigners for justice, right? And it's not enough for them to do it. We also need to hold adults institutions accountable. And so we created a webinar series called Redesigners in Action that is intergenerational, but primarily adults, that to have them really start to reflect on how do you build beyond diversity? How do you understand the importance of language setting? You know, how do you challenge traditional design thinking 
And um, and honestly, the way it protects white supremacy and the output has been fantastic where we've had almost 6000 folks attend since we started them last year. Uh, and we have more rolling out, which I'm actually excited to see come out this upcoming summer. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Listeners, check those out for sure. Yeah, no, I'm so inspired. I just want to just jump in to be like, Antoinette, you are like the queen in this space, right? I, I just, you know, I'm not saying that just to gas you up, but truly you've been in this space and you've been steadfast in really just building community and also resetting people's mindsets around what this work is. And one thing that I just want to say about this is that nothing that we're doing is really novel, like you said, right? <laughs> right? You just, yeah, it's not new. It's just like people have been doing it forever and ever and ever. And it's really important to pay homage and also to call out our lineage. And so part of my lineage, part of Project Inkblot's lineage is also from Antoinette, your lineage, right? Through the work that you do. And one thing that I'm really interested in is that I'm sure y'all are tapped out because right now there's a lot of demand for this work and we're tapped out too. And so many of our colleagues are tapped out. And one thing that I'm really curious about is like, how do we collectivize people who are really in this space who have a shared, not just mission, but really values and philosophy around this approach? Because so much of what you're doing is similar to us in that you're you're teaching critical thinking at the end of the day. It's not about doing. It's about the why. It's about the systems thinking. It's about historical context. It's about having people acknowledge before we enter into how do we fix this? You can't fix it, right? Um, we want people to know that everything has been steeped in white supremacy. So even to go back to what Sam, you and I were talking about before is like, it's not just a mountain. It is everything. Everything that we do has to be turned over in a way. So I'm just curious about that question. Like, what do you see as opportunities to really co collectivize people in the space so that we're not constantly over exhausted and overextended and all of that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And I will say this, that is a true question. And honestly, it, it it's very hard. Like you can tell folks that want to show up because one, they're earlier in their journey and everyone had that starting point in their journey. I feel like there's times in which folks are like, well, I don't know. I haven't figured it out. Guess what? So is everyone else. <laughs> okay. That's just mm. the nature of it. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, there are some folks that are like, I want to be performative. I want to put up a black square and that's all I want to do. Uh, and then say that I've done, I want to retweet something and that's all that I want to do. And then there's folks that is, this is their life. Like, this is what they do. This is what they breathe. And I think it's important for people to really reflect on where am I on my journey and how do I continue to move that needle more and more every day? And I tell people all the time, I view the work I do as drops in the bucket mentality. Like, I don't think that I'm filling up this bucket immediately. You know, I see that every little small thing that I'm doing every day, is just another small, another small drop in that bucket to get me closer to one, my own individual liberation, but then also our collective liberation, because we have to li first liberate ourselves and also then collectively liberate each other in partnership with one another and think about how do we shift and share power. Um, and I also want to name that sometimes you you have to take the break and determine what that break means for you is, is your decision. And what I mean by that, like last well, I can't even just say last year. For the last three years, um, this time of year is always the hardest time for me because this time of year is the anniversary of my brother's murder. My brother was a um, victim of gun violence 
at 14 years old. Um, and it was a 13 year old boy that shot him in his bedroom over his iPhone. So when I was supposed to be his friend and remember I said creative reaction, I started seven years ago. So this was, <laughs> this was in this, it wasn't like I, this happened prior. This was actually, you know, four years in to creative reaction lab. And at that time, I really started to reflect on, am I being effective? Why am I doing this work? If I couldn't save my brother, how do I actually shift mindsets of others if I couldn't even like impact my own family? And so I I took a small break to really reflect on myself. And every year around this time, I do take a small break. Now, my break this year was quote unquote, Monday and Tuesday last week. That was it. (laughs) Different scales. (laughs) Different scales. Um, But then like, Last year, it was hard to take the break because around the same time in the anniversary was the same time where people were starting to pay attention to the continual killing of Black people and by police. And then you saw the continual stories of, you know, Asian erasure, you know, and and it's like, it just kept going. And so there's times in which, like, it took months for me to watch the video of George Floyd. It took months. And part of it was because of my own safety. I was like, I, I can't keep watching my community being killed. That's not helping me or anyone else. And so it took, I took the space that I needed to then dive deeper into it. And so I encourage folks, like, take the space, like, think about where you are in your journey and start your plan on how do you continually raise your racial and ethnic consciousness and also think about how do we collectively mobilize challenge traditional systems, et cetera, but also take the space that you need and determine what that taking of the space means for you. For me, it's being with my family. You know, I'm a mother of twin sons, you know, so I'm with my husband, I'm with my kids and we have a huge anime collection. There we Let go. me just put it down. Yeah, <laughs> yep. that's how you get through. <laughs> anime and arcades, that's what we do, you know? I love it. But it's it, it helps me in those moments where I either want to cry or I am crying. And if anyone tells you otherwise that, oh, no, this this work is easy, then I question what they're actually doing in the work. So much of what we see in movement space is that that is all about building our own stuff, come into our house, build our own thing. And then there are people who are reforming institutions. And there's very little communication or dialogue in between those two spaces. There's actually judgment between those two spaces, unfortunately. That's right. That's Uh right. Exactly. So I think what you're doing is super powerful. I'd love for you to just speak a little bit more about the the role of bridge builders. I mean, what y'all are doing, you are bridge builders. Yeah, I think it's... It's very difficult and necessary for us to get to what we actually are working towards. It can't only be done in caucus space. However, we need those spaces for our own racial consciousness building, our own, you know, some people say safety. I I cringe at the word safety. Well, talk about that. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, because the word safety, I've been in several, especially even in diversity, equity, inclusion spaces where that has been used against communities of color. It's similar to like my organization. We don't say target audience. We say audience of focus. And part of that is because communities of color have been targeted so many times throughout history. And again, a lot of times we don't think about the ramification of our language. And so with safety, I have been in spaces, even with communities of color, because hey, we, we also navigate white supremacy too, where it's like, well, I need my community to be safe. Okay, unpack that. What does that mean? It's kind of like when people say urban environments. Okay, unpack that. What does that mean? And most of the time, they're talking about people of color. They're talking about, and even more so, talking about 
black people or they're talking about undocumented individuals or they're talking you know what i'm saying like there's coding in our language and that term safety is just like and i also recognize that we need to have a space of uh, one of my staff members jeff perkins he's our program manager he talks about not having balance but having a rhythm um and we need space where we can have that connection across identities and understanding our rhythm in in spaces you know like we need to be able to talk about this is what i'm navigating as a black woman this is what i'm taught this is what i'm navigating as you know a trans korean individual like this is what i'm not right like there's we need those spaces and it's not enough to just be in those spaces. We also need to also engage with the folks that are maybe not in those spaces and then maybe they're design allies or they may have decided that they don't want more of the outside of the institutional role. They want to be internal uh, disruptors and that's okay. How do we engage with one another? The last thing I would say, the Uprising Ferguson really showed me how separated and segregated we are and how siloed we are. I've seen folks say, well, why they shouldn't protest that way or why are they doing this or, you know, and it, and they're all excuses, uh, things we haven't unpacked ourselves. And I've seen the institutional folks challenge the organizers. I've seen the organizers call the institutional folks, you know, sellouts, you know, and I think that for us to create that change, we need to have folks in three places. We need to have the folks that are the entrepreneurs that's going to create change from within the organization. We need to have the folks that are entrepreneurs that's going to build new institutions that are challenging white supremacy and and, and racism culture. And then we need the organizers that's going to hold both of them accountable. (laughs) There you go. I love that. I loved your... um the clarity around naming, right? Like naming what's there, naming the communities that you're speaking of, not just using, I mean, there's so much jargon in each of these silos that you're speaking of. So like, what are we actually talking about here is fundamental. And the other piece is around racial equity work is relational work. We can't do it without people. We can't do it without relationship building. But I want to kind of transition uh, to my last question, which I think is, one of the hardest things, even for people in this work, which is like, what does racial equity look like, feel like for you if it were actualized? That is the hardest question that we've been asking ourselves and others because it requires imagination of a world that doesn't exist. And it's one that I'm learning every, I'm learning more and more every day. Like one of the things for me, like racial equity in my family, would be like one of the things, because there's many, but one of the things would be legacy building. And it's been something that I've been really reflecting on. And some folks, when they hear legacy building, especially if you take it from a more privileged standpoint, they're like, oh, it's ego driven. You're trying to put your name on a building, you know, blah, blah, blah. For me, I talk about legacy building because I don't know my ancestors. I have no idea who they were. And it pains me inside to think about what they went through for me to get to where I am today and I can't even recognize them and their contribution. And how will that continue on if we don't do something in our own communities? And so when I think about racial equity and we talk about, again, when outcomes are not predictable based on race, that means that my brother wouldn't have been killed by gun violence, that I wouldn't have had so many family members impacted by vices such as drugs, or alcoholism, that cancer didn't occur 
in my family so heavily because the neighborhood that they were living in used to be a trash dump and then they were displaced when a corporation bought it. So when I think about racial equity, I do think about legacy and the fact that my my ancestors will be known and also even the, the my my folks that's, that my family that's going to be there later, you know, in 100 200 years, they know me and they know my brother that unfortunately was lost. They know my sons and they recognize the power in that. Like it took me a long time to realize that there were black queens because <laughs> of the narrative I was taught. Mm-hmm. That's not what I was taught. Mm-hmm. Like Disney princesses, you didn't see no black folks. So if we're not a princess, we definitely ain't no queen. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. But it wasn't until I went to the National African American History and Culture Museum that I started to even learn more about what it means to even be black, you know, like actually connected to African heritage and not just American heritage. And even then, what does America actually mean when you think about again the continual stealing of land that we all are still living on and not acknowledging? what that has actually done for us to continue to be siloed and also for us to seem to have this, again, paternalistic mindset that I deserve this, you know? And so racial equity is very complicated, but the one thing I am very focused on for that's key to my racial equity and my racial liberation is legacy. That was so powerful. And also going back to what you said earlier about part of your mission is healing, right? It's it's healing to vision. It's healing to not be reacting to what's effed up, right? It's healing. It's healing to be able to to envision something that has never been done before. And like what you're speaking of is like for some folks, again, naming, right? Mostly white folks, they take that for granted. That's not yeah. That's not a thing, right? So when you're talking about that, it's so deeply powerful and it's like very visceral. You know what I'm saying? It's like the family tree exercise that people don't really think about how some communities have a really hard time to do it. I couldn't do my family tree. And my sons just had an activity that they had to do in school where they asked them to bring an example of their culture to school. And my sons didn't know what to do. Literally, they were looking at Black Lives Matter signs. Like, that's what Mm. they were like. Do we do we bring do we bring that like you know? Mm. And I, I think a lot of folks take that for granted um, that there's a there's a good amount of population that we don't know who we are, and that's that leaves a major gap for us. Mm-hmm. Thank you both. What a great conversation, Antoinette. Thank you for sharing your expertise and your stories. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you both. And consider me one of the drops in your humble bucket, because I I think your workshops really got me thinking about language, particularly in design, uh, in in new ways. So I really appreciate it. Keep keep dropping those those drops, (laughs) both of you. Thank you. Listeners, uh, to learn more about Antoinette's work, uh, we will include some links to her TED Talks in our show notes, and you can visit creativereactionlab.com. And now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. So my kids have all kinds of toys. They're floating around the house. They're just everywhere. And I love playing with them. It's like one of the joys of my life. I mean, who doesn't like to play? 
Um, and I often find myself just sitting there playing with this one toy in particular. And it's like this like popping toy. It's kind of like bubble wrap, but it's silicone. And basically you can like pop the bubbles over and over. Like you pop them on one side and you flip it over, you can pop them again. And I love this thing. I need that. It's, yeah, it's super relaxing for some reason. And it turns out that this is like the new fidget craze, like this popping thing, oh. which I would never know. I don't know any crazes, but anyway, <laughs> um, that's why I love this podcast because I get to research these things. So I found a great article on the conversation by Catherine Isbister about this trend and some of the science behind these toys that are like relieve anxiety and help you focus your attention, avoid distraction, et cetera. We'll post a link. But she cites this research study by Julie Schweitzer, who is a behavioral science professor at University of California, Davis, where they let children with ADHD basically like fidget and do movements while working on like a cognitively demanding task. Mm. And they found that those movements help them actually complete that task. And I love it because the, the author of the article and the author of the study are now collaborating to specifically study these fidgeting toys. So great. Anyway, so move over. The fidget spinners are out and these popping toys are in and I just love them. The one I have is really for babies. <laughs> um, it's made by Fat Brain Toys. It's called the Dimple with no E, just Dimple. You got to cut that E off. Dimple Baby and Toddler Learning Toy. That's what it's called. It has five silicone bubbles of various sizes and colors. But I found a more advanced one, advanced in quotes, with 36 smaller bubbles. So I think I'm going to order that one for myself. So anyway, get out there, folks, and you know, pop some bubbles. So that's like the advanced baby version? Yeah, that's right. Okay. How do you that's know if right. your baby is advanced? Is ready for that? Yeah. <laughs> it's a running joke with my wife and I about like how advanced children are. It's like, can, can they just be children right exactly yeah. so much pressure um that's awesome i'm so gonna that's get mine, that boy when you are up okay so i recently came upon this video which is probably a couple years old at this point but um so Jahan, my business partner sent it over to me and actually came from one of our clients but it's a aiga youtube video by liz jackson who's a disability designer and it's freaking badass. And it's called Honoring the Friction of Disability. And the main thing that I want to point out here is that so much of her work is around this idea of design questioning. So it's like before you get into the thinking or whatever the terminology is and the doing and all of that, it's like, what are the questions that we're asking? What are the fundamental questions? And I mentioned this in the first segment, but one of the main things is like, why is it that when we think of designers, we're never thinking about people with disabilities, right? We're never thinking about misrepresented folks in general. Obviously, we're not talking about, we're not thinking about Black, Latinx, other BIPOC people for the most part, right? Um, but when we are regarded or thought of, it's more in terms of like user testers or whatever that is. And it's just like, that is in the thinking of, of things, right? It's like we, that that's like when we just snap into that zone or that lens, in that filter, we're missing, we're not just missing so much, but then we're just creating the same patterns over and over and over again. And one of the key things that we teach in our work is this concept of targeted universalism. And again, I know that we spoke about targeting not being a great term, but it actually was created by uh, a Black man researcher who does this work in policy. And the idea is that if you center those who are most impacted, and if we're talking about racial equity, we're talking about Black, Latinx, Indigenous folks, et cetera, right? Um, most impacted, 
if we create solutions based on centering those most impacted, going back to the concept of centering that Antoinette was talking about, it's going to benefit everybody else. And there are examples such as curb cuts, right? There are also examples like um, similar to what you're talking about, kids with autism or ADHD, if they're engaging with these toys, if they're a part of designing the thing, it's going to be useful for us to calm down. Or like um, weighted blankets, for instance, was also originated from that. So if we just take that thinking and bring it to something so weighted and so complex as race that nobody wants to touch that concept, but if we use that same idea, then we can we can approach racial equity through that type of thinking. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. I love that. I can't wait to watch the video. Very good weekly dose of good design. And folks, if you have examples of weekly doses, I would love to hear them. I have to come up with one every week. So I would be very happy for folks to share theirs with me on Twitter, at Sam Aquilano, and maybe I'll share them on the podcast. So Thank you so much, Boylan, for being here. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank you. This was a blast. We'll have to have you back on. Yeah, I would love that. That's our show. I want to again thank Boywen Gao and Antoinette Carroll for joining us. What an awesome conversation. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to Project Inkplot and Creative Reaction Lab and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, remember our next live show is June 25th at noon Eastern, all about planetary boundary cities. So we're gonna learn about that together. Become a member and you can get your tickets for our member only live shows. And as a member, you'll get Design Museum Magazine as well. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome weekly email newsletter. can come right to your inbox. You'll get the latest from the Design Museum. You can sign up for that on our website as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by the amazing Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk next week.